I want you to take a moment and answer this question just kind of in your own mind, in your own heart. Do you have peace right now? And I don't know what kind of comes to your mind, yes, no, or you're maybe not sure, what does that mean? But do you have peace? Do you feel at peace? There's a lot of different ways that maybe we could define that. I think I just typed in inner peace into uh, Google, and kind of the top thing is uh, from Wikipedia, but I think it's kind of a somewhat helpful definition. It says, inner peace refers to a deliberate state of psychological or spiritual calm, despite the potential presence of stressors, such as the burden arising from pretending to be someone else, could disrupt inner peace. And then further on uh, Wikipedia says, being at peace is considered by many to be healthy and the opposite of being stressed or anxious and is considered to be a state where our mind performs at an optimal, optimal level with a positive outcome. Peace of mind is thus generally associated with bliss, happiness, and contentment. So even just kind of thinking about that, and I don't think that's the fullest definition of peace, and obviously this is not coming from a, a Christian uh, standpoint, but just even starting at that place to think, is that, does that describe me? Is that describe kind of what is happening in my life right now, that I'm uh, operating at an optimal level with a positive outcome? You might not say that if someone says, how are you doing? I'm, opt I'm operating at a positive outcome with an optimal level or whatever. Obviously, I'm not. So, I mean, you, you, might, not, uh, you might not say it like that, but, it, but is that kind of what describes you right now? Peace. Do you feel at peace? I think a lot of us feel unrest. I think a lot of us don't feel at peace. We have these kind of chaos around us, just like it said, there's these stressors around us. We have chaos around us. And then in, in the middle of that chaos, all the different things going on, pandemic, work, family, kids, all the different chaos that's happening around us, we are busy most of the time, and we're doing things and doing things. And then oftentimes we have lots of distractions, whether those are kind of Facebook or being on our phone. I, I read recently that we, I can't remember exactly what the number was, but something like this, that we touch our phones 2,000 times a day. That we're just constantly grabbing it. We're looking at the news. We're looking at social media. We're looking at our email. We're looking at our texts. We're just touching it because we like it just to remember, you know, okay, I'm, I'm still connected to the world, whatever it is. But we, we have all these distract, we have chaos and busyness and distractions. And then a lot of times there's unrest kind of bubbling up in there and we, we escape, meaning in the middle of all the chaos and busyness and distractions, we do some things to kind of take our mind off of it to do something to kind of bring some sense of peace, not by actually creating inner peace, but by just not focusing on what's going on. So we escape through Netflix. We escape through, we, it can be through social media. We escape through, you know, a thing of ice cream or escape through Netflix or, or whatever it might be, alcohol. And we, we try to just kind of shut down the stuff. And then oftentimes, as all of this stuff is happening and there's not peace and there's unrest, it leads to some form of eruption at some point. And that might be a panic attack. That might be where, where all of a sudden all of the unrest catches up to you. That might be kind of an outburst of anger and you say something like, where did that come from? I don't even know where that came from. It might lead to kind of an angry email that comes out of you that's kind of out of character for you normally. It might lead to just kind of weird choices 
Like if all of a sudden I just showed up here and my hair was dyed blue, you might be like, what is going on? Not that there's anything wrong with blue hair, but you might just say like, what is going on with him? It just leads to kind of crazy choices or I'm moving or I'm leaving this person or I'm doing this thing. It just kind of leads to these weird eruptions that all of a sudden happen. We've got this unrest that's inside of us and there can be a lot of different reasons for that unrest. There can be a lot of different reasons, but, and obviously we can't talk about all of them, but I think one of the core reasons, oftentimes underneath so much of the unrest that we experience, is actually guilt. And many people don't think that. Like if I asked you, how's it going today? Or if I asked you um, kind of what some of the issues that you are facing right now are, guilt is not something that a lot of people think about. It's not something that a lot of people say. Most people have, that have met with me as a pastor don't say, I'd like to talk to you because I'm feeling really guilty. I, I know some people feel that way, but that's not something that we commonly think that we are dealing with, but a lot of times it's actually happening underneath the surface. You may feel like a failure in something, maybe not just as the, the, the title of your life, but you may feel like kind of failing at being a mom or failing at being a dad or failing at being a friend or not doing a good job at work, or I'm, I'm failing at life, I'm not kind of as successful as I wanted to be. You may feel it in a sense of inadequacy, I'm not good enough, I can't do these things, I don't have what it takes, in the kind of a low self-esteem, you may feel it kind of in that. You may feel it in the need of other people's acceptance of you, wanting people to like you, wanting people to approve of you, maybe in even a hyper uh, def- defensiveness getting offended easily. You may feel it in those things, even just in kind of a discontent with life. A lot of times we don't know that that is actually guilt that's happening underneath the surface, creating an unrest, which means we don't have peace. We're not at peace with God. We're not at peace with ourselves. We have kind of this emotional inner turmoil. We're not at peace oftentimes even with others because we're needing them to accept us and affirm us and we're defensive against them. And so we're not at peace with others. We're not at peace with even life, just kind of the life we have because it in some ways can feel maybe like a failure or not what we wanted it to be. And so underneath the surface, a lot of times guilt is creating an unrest, which means oftentimes we don't experience the peace that we want. We want to be operating at an optimum, why can't I say that? We want to be operating at an optimal level with positive outcomes. That's what we want, but oftentimes we experience an unrest. But what if we could have peace? What if you could have what was described there? What if, no matter what the stressors are going on around you, you could actually have peace? You could feel rest. What if we could have that? Is that something that can be available to us? What if you didn't have to have guilt? No feelings of inadequacy or failure or low self-esteem or needing people's acceptance. How, how do we get that? How can we get peace? That's really what we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at a snapshot, uh, one story in Jesus' interaction with 
two different people, and it's one of the most powerful keys that we can get to experiencing peace, to experiencing no guilt. So we're going to read this story, and then we will talk about what it teaches us about how to, how to have peace and really how to, how to be free of guilt, which is often the source of that unrest and lack of peace. Here's what it says, and, and if you're new, also we're going through the book of Luke. Uh, we started going through it last year and then kind of got interrupted, but we are going through the book of Luke together this year. And here, here's what it says. Then one of the Pharisees, that was one of the religious leaders of the time, invited him, talking about Jesus, invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That's how they ate back then. They would kind of lay down and, and eat. I'm not going to like lay down and show you, but that's how they would eat back then, which I think we should bring that back. It seems like a comfortable way to, to do. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you, which if Jesus says to you, usually is a kind of a preface of like, uh, okay, here we go. And he said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That's about uh, anywhere between a year and a half to two years salary. Okay, so that's a lot of money. And the other 50, about two months. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose, I love that he kind of was trying to get himself out of it a little bit, I suppose, like he doesn't know, the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Start with this question. Where does our guilt come from? If guilt is part of the source of the unrest that we feel, if guilt is a part often underneath a lot of the lack of peace that we feel, even if that's not maybe how you would have identified it, where does it come from? I thought this article was kind of helpful just in laying out. This is not a, a Christian article, but she just says, why do we feel so guilty all the time? And says, I feel guilty about everything. Maybe some of you can identify with this. Already today, I felt guilty about having said the wrong thing to a friend. Then I felt guilty about avoiding that friend because of the wrong thing I'd said. Plus, I haven't called my mother yet today. Guilty. And I really should have organized something special for my husband's birthday. Guilty. I gave the wrong kind of food to my child. Guilty. I've been cutting corners at work lately. Guilty. I skipped breakfast. 
Guilty. I snacked instead. Double guilty. I'm taking up all this space in a world with not enough space in it. Guilty, guilty, guilty. She goes on and on. And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you identify with even just that. But what I liked about this article is just the beginning of it saying all of these opportunities, all of these different things, even in the course of a normal day where we can feel guilt. Where does it come from? It can come from things that we've done. It can come from things that we didn't do, that we thought we should do or that we should do. It can come from other people's rules or expectations on us or for us. And some of that guilt is good. If you have done something wrong to another person, you shouldn't be a sociopath. You should feel some guilt of what you've done to that person. If you get one thing out of the sermon today, write down, I shouldn't be a sociopath. There you go. Like, ah, I knew it. It can come from a lot of different things. Some of it's good. Some of it's misplaced. We feel guilt for things we shouldn't feel guilt over. But one of the keys that we often miss, one of the sources of guilt that we often miss, that, listen, we will never have peace without. Because if we try to extinguish guilt here and extinguish guilt here, but we never deal with this, one of the key sources of guilt that we often miss, I think is actually probably the main source, is that indeed we are guilty before God. That we objectively are guilty before God. Simon notices this. Simon's the, the name of the Pharisee here. He, he says, this woman is a sinner. Look, look at how I, I just kind of pulled out these three different parts. The narrator says, so the narrator, Luke, of the story says, this woman was a sinner. Simon says, Simon says, she's a sinner. And Jesus says, her many sins. All three, the narrator, Simon, Jesus, they agree. Simon doesn't say, she's a sinner. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? Don't, don't judge her. She's totally fine. And only God can judge her. Or you don't know her life. Jesus, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, you don't understand and you don't get it. He, he doesn't do that. He actually increases it. He says, her many sins. You see, part of where our guilt comes from is that in actuality, we are guilty. We are sinners. And so much in our culture wants to deny that. So much in our culture wants to remove any sense of guilt that and you may have said this to other people, you may have heard this from friends, that if you feel any guilt, you shouldn't feel that. Sometimes even Christians will say, God, God, you shouldn't, God doesn't make people feel guilty. That's not true. One of the main sources of our guilt is that we are sinners. We are actually guilty before God. And Jesus says, sin is a debt. Sin is a debt that we are actually unable to pay back. And the, the little story that he gives, it's a debt that we are so unable to do anything about, we can't even pay it back. I don't know if you've ever been in such debt that you owed a year and a half of your salary. Or even if it was only two months of your salary, either way in the story, the point is neither of them can pay it back. Whether it's a year and a half of salary or it's only two months of salary, either way, both of them cannot pay it back. 
That is what sin is. We are guilty and we are unable to pay it back. This is such an important idea. Even, you know, this is a a helpful little story because it shows us what sin is like, even though this is contrary to often how we feel. We often, whether you believe this kind of in your brain or not, we often think we can pay back what we've done. So if we do something wrong, we try to make up for it. Popular notion of karma, which is, okay, I've got to outweigh, I've got my good deeds, have to outweigh my bad deeds. And if I've done these good things, good thing, put good out into the world and good will come back to you. And people are getting their just desserts, right? People are getting what they deserve. They've done this. Well, there's karma. Ain't karma fill in the blank. That's what people say, right? That things happen to you. Because we understand somehow that sin actually is a debt and we believe somehow, okay, I need to pay it back somehow. Jesus is saying it's actually worse than we think though. We are sinners. We are guilty before God. But it it is as such that we can never pay it back. We are unable to pay it back. Now, I think that's an interesting point to make because we often don't think that we are unable to pay it back. I was thinking about this, and part of the reason that we are unable to pay it back is because sin is relational damage that's done. It's not just an objective um, thing, a transaction that's broken. It's not even just finances. That's a story that helps us understand something. But part of the reason that we are unable to pay it back is because it's relational damage. It's us actually sinning against a person, God. So if, if, um, if we're out in the parking lot on, on the way out of here and I ram into you with my car on accident and then I say, I can pay that back. Can I? Yes, I can pay it back. I can fix what's done. And that's a lot of times how we think about sin. Okay, maybe I've done something wrong, but I can make up for it. I can do something good. But if, I, if we're out in the parking lot and I actually see you starting to pull away and I step on the gas and purposefully run into you, then I can still fix your car, but I've actually now done relational damage. You go, what are you doing? And I say, I, I just wanted to run into you. I don't like you very much. You wouldn't just go, and then if I said, well, I, don't worry, I'll fix it. Okay, I can fix it. But there's now relational damage done also. You don't trust me anymore. You feel like I have wronged you. You're not sure about me now. If you think about other sins, adultery, you can't just pay that back. If you think about abuse, you can't just pay that back. When relational damage is done, you can't just pay that thing back. And part of why we are unable to pay back our debt to God is because it's relational damage. All of our sin, the Bible says, is relational. It's against God. We are rejecting God. We are ignoring God. God is a good, loving Father. He's the creator. He says, I want relationship with you. I want life for you. And any time we sin, it's not just that we are doing a thing. It's that we are rejecting a person. It's that we are ignoring a person. It's that we are saying, I don't think you are good. I don't trust you. It's relational damage that's caused. And you can't just pay that back. We are accruing a debt for ourselves that we are unable 
to pay back because it's relational damage. I don't think we often think about our sin like that. If you think about the last sin that you did that you know of, maybe you were harsh with someone, maybe you were impatient with someone, maybe you kind of deceived or told a white lie, maybe it's something worse than that. I'm just trying to kind of put some small things in there that are maybe everyday occurrences. Got angry, you didn't trust, different things like that. If you think about those things, you may, have, you may even apologize to a person. You may say, I'm sorry I was rude to you. I'm sorry I was impatient with you. I'm sorry I was ungrateful to you. But we don't often think that those are actually against God. But they are. Any sin that we do against another person is against God because we are, we are harming and mistreating someone that he cares about. And we are living in a way that he didn't create us to live in. Even if you just think about complaining, the Bible says that complaining is an awful sin. But we complain all the time. But when we complain, we're saying, God, I don't like the world you've made. When we complain, we're saying, I don't like the life you've given to me. When we complain, we're saying, you don't actually know what you are doing. You're not as wise as you say you are. You're not as good as you say you are. And I've got things that I can find fault with. See, all of our sin is actually relational against God. All of our sin is unable to be paid back because it is against a person. It is relational. And here's even one other spin on this of where our guilt comes from. Sometimes our guilt comes from not actually sinning. It is a sin against God. I'll tell you in a, in a minute how. But it's not actually sinning. We don't consciously see it as sinning against God. But our guilt comes from because we have failed another God. If your sense of righteousness or okayness in life is your success, and therefore success is your God, and again, you wouldn't say it in those terms, but if success is your God, then if you are failing, whatever that measure of success is, you have failed your God. And so you feel guilty before that God. You have sinned against that God. If your sense of righteousness, okayness in life, if your true God in life, where you actually get a sense of identity, a sense of meaning, a sense of worth, a sense of value, if your true God in life is being a good son or daughter, and then therefore you don't call back your mom, like it said, and you kind of live with that, man, I'm, I'm not as good as I should be. I'm failing my God of being, of my identity and being a good son or daughter or being a good mom. People talk about mom guilt a lot because oftentimes an identity is in being a good mom. That's my sense of righteousness and I have failed. For many guys, it's their work or what they, invent, and this can be for women too, but for many guys, it's their work or what they wanted to accomplish in life. And when they look at their life, whether it's just their life or they look at it in comparison to other people and they go, I'm not where I wanted to be. And they just feel like some sort of failure or inadequate because they have failed the God of success, however it's defined. And so we feel guilt when we have sinned against the true God, but we also feel guilt often when we have sinned against a God of our own making, which is a sin against the true God. So even if you don't feel guilt because of your sin against God, you 
we often feel guilt because of our sin against our own gods, which is a sin against the true God because we have exchanged the true God for a false God. This is probably where Simon the Pharisee was. He, he can easily look at that woman and say she's a sinner, but a Pharisee, a religious leader, is priding themselves on all of their righteousness found in their morality and in their religious practice. Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells us that this is what his life was like. He said he had a righteousness of his own found in all of his keeping of the moral law and being from the right tribe of Israel in all of these things. He said, I found a righteousness which was sin. So where's our guilt come from? There can be a lot of different sources. Some of it can be misplaced. But one of the things that we often miss is that our guilt comes from the reality that we sin against God. Our guilt comes from the reality that we have rejected and ignored God either through our sinful actions or through a sinful heart that has replaced him with a different God. And so we're constantly feeling guilty for failing that God. So that's the end of our sermon. I hope you have a good rest of your day. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, how can our guilt be dealt with then? There is good news. You know, we already read the story. So how, how can our guilt be dealt with? If, if guilt is one of the sources underneath our lack of peace, causing unrest, and Jesus says we are unable to deal with it, how can it be dealt with? So let me ask you, what, what do you, and this isn't like a don't raise your hand and respond, but what do you do when you feel guilty? What do you do when you feel guilty before God for what you've done, or you just feel those sense of failure, and I'm not good enough, and mom guilt, and dad guilt, and success, failure, inadequacy. Well, what do you do when you feel that? What happens? What do you turn to when you feel that? A lot of times we deny it. We say, I, I actually am good. I am a good, I am, look how successful I am. I actually have done a good job. We deny it, kind of with affirmative statements. We ignore it. You might start to feel it, and then you just kind of go, okay, get that out of my head. Get back on my phone, get back on, get back on Netflix, get back just to doing my job. We ignore it. Some of us, and some of this you know, is personality and upbringing, some of us maybe just sulk. You feel guilt, you feel inadequacy, you feel failure, and you just kind of feel like crap. Some of us will uh, try to do better. You feel like, okay, even back to the woman that was quoted here, I, I didn't feed my kids the right thing, or I didn't eat bread. Okay, I'm going to do better. This is going to be the week. This is going to be the day. This is going to be the year that I try harder, that I work better at my diet, that I work better at my job, that I work better at my relationships. I'm going, I feel some kind of guilt, and I'm going to do better. Or, a lot of times, we just try to release ourselves from it. We might believe it's there. We might believe that it's present, and we just kind of try to free ourselves from it. Let it go. I was reading this article on Healthline by a psychologist that gives all of these kind of different tips of how to handle our guilt. Guilt makes a heavy burden. Don't let it drag you down. So what can you do to not be dragged down by guilt? And it gives all these different things, but then the summary statement, the bottom line, is this. Guilt belongs in the past. You can begin letting it go 
by strengthening your resilience and building confidence to make better choices in the future. You can do better, resolve to do better in the future. If you're struggling to resolve feelings of guilt, no, you don't need to do it alone. Therapy can offer a safe place to learn how to forgive yourself and move forward. That really is the bottom line from a secular worldview. You can try harder, let it be in the past, you can move forward and do better from now on, or, and, learn to forgive yourself. Learn to release it. Learn to forgive yourself. And listen, I've talked to many of you and many Christians in my years in ministry, and oftentimes, this is exactly, even though this is from a non-Christian perspective, how we operate. I'm going to leave that in the past, I'm going to do better. I've got all this stuff in my heart, and I know I just need to forgive myself. The problem is, neither of those things is what Jesus says we are to do. Neither of those things will work. Neither of those things will give you the peace that we want to experience. They will leave us with a constant unrest. You know why? Because they're still self-focused. They're still centered on ourselves. I have done something wrong. I will do something better. I have sinned. I will forgive myself. I have feelings of uh, failure and a lack of worth. I will tell myself I'm acceptable. I will release myself from my debt. But the problem, as we looked at in the first thing, is our sin is against God. Our sin is against God, either by having a false God or by actions that we do that are against God. Our sin is against God. So you can't just do better and you can't just forgive yourself. Think about the story that Jesus told of the debtors and the one that, owe, that owes a year and a half worth of salary and can't pay it back. And if that person was to go into their, their debtor, and you could try this if you're in debt at all, and, and you could just say, listen, I'm not going to pay you back, but from this day forward, I'm going to do better. They wouldn't say, you know what? I appreciate the effort. All your debt is gone. It doesn't matter how much you do better from this day forward. The past, you have still accrued a debt. And then secondly, imagine going to, maybe you have student loan debt or maybe you've got a mortgage. Imagine going into the bank, going to see old Sally Mae or going to see Uncle Sam or whoever it is and saying, listen, I know I have a large debt, but I've forgiven myself. And then walking out, they would laugh because the debt, you can't forgive yourself. The debt is against someone else. It's the same with God. There is nowhere in the Bible, and in fact, listen, I, I'm going to say this, even though maybe it sounds strong, but I really believe this. It is demonic to try to forgive yourself. And the reason I say that is because you are taking the place of God, and you're actually rejecting God's forgiveness for you, and saying, that's not good enough. I have failed a different God. I have failed myself, and myself won't forgive myself. We have sinned against God. We owe a debt to God, which means we are unable, no matter how good we do, and no matter how much we release ourselves, we can't. And I say demonic 
just in case that freaks some of you out, not to say you're possessed or something, but to say that it's a lie from Satan that actually keeps us trapped then in our lack of peace, keeps us trapped in our unrest. It's a lie to pervert us from the free grace that Jesus offers to us. How can we deal with our guilt? Well, this all leads us to we need forgiveness, which is what Jesus said in the story. They could not pay it back. He graciously forgave them both. We need forgiveness from the one that we have racked up a debt to. We need forgiveness from the one that we have sinned against. And Jesus says, here's what's available to you. Here's how your debt, until we understand, I cannot deal with my own debt. I cannot forgive myself. I cannot get rid of guilt on my own. Until we get that, we don't experience peace. Jesus says, I will give you forgiveness. You've sinned against me, but I will be the one that forgives you. And Jesus says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Not anything that she did, not any payback that that she did. He didn't say to her, listen, just forgive yourself. That's not how shallow would this story be if that's what the conclusion was. Just forgive yourself, lady. And Simon goes, huh, that's interesting. I never thought about that. That's not what he does. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. This woman had obviously, I mean, she heard that Jesus was at the house and then comes running to him. So she had obviously heard Jesus preaching and teaching. Jesus had been going from city to city, had been preaching, he'd been talking about the gospel, the good news. She had obviously heard this already and had trusted, had had faith in the message that Jesus was saying. She had listened to Jesus preaching and her faith in what he said as he preached drew her. And what would it have been that she saw? What would it have been that she was listening to as he preached? You can go back and listen to some of the recorded sermons that are in Luke. But really, I think this summarizes the, the other... I should put it back. This summarizes some of it. He graciously forgave them both. It tells what she would have seen that she put her faith in is at least those two things. One, that the disposition that God has towards us is grace. The disposition God has towards sinners is grace. If you, can, if you can be honest with yourself and say, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against God by the things I've done. I've sinned against God maybe this weekend, this morning. I've sinned against God by the things I've done. If you can be honest with your heart and say, yes, and I've sinned against God by, by actually trusting in other gods and other forms of righteousness and feeling like a failure because I haven't met up to those standards, but it's been a false God. If you can own that, how does God feel towards you? What is his disposition? What is his posture towards you? It says here, it's grace. It's grace. It's mercy. It's compassion. It's a scary thing to go confess your sin to someone. If you've sinned against a person or it's just kind of bringing out some kind of secret thing, That's a scary thing to do. Some of you have had that experience. It's a scary thing to do. And what we're usually afraid of is if I go to that person and say, here's what I did. I did this, I did this, I did this. 
we're afraid that person's going to reject us. We're afraid that person's going to be angry with us. We're afraid that person's going to harm us. We're afraid that person's not going to like us anymore or end relationship with us. And part of what this woman would have heard in the preaching of Jesus and seen in his life and now experiences even as he tells this story in relation to her is that his disposition towards sinners is grace. His disposition towards you is grace. I love what Simon says. Simon says, if he knew, if this man were really a prophet, if he knew who she was, if he knew who she was and what she had done, he wouldn't wouldn't let her touch him. But the truth is this. Jesus knows who you are. Jesus is not a fool. Jesus knew who she was. Jesus knew what she had done. And listen, Jesus knows you. He knows who you are. He knows what you've done. He knows you more than you know yourself. He knows, like the sin that you are aware of, he knows that it goes even layers deep. He knows in and out your deepest, darkest secrets, your confused tangle of emotions. He knows. And unlike what Simon says, it's not if he knew he would turn away from you. It's he does know and he's gracious. That is Jesus' disposition towards sinners. That's part of what she would have heard. That's part of when Jesus says, your faith has saved you, what it meant. Her faith in what? Her faith that God is a gracious God that knows you up and down, all the way through, and wants you. And second, faith in the fact that he forgives. It's not just that he's a gracious person. That's who he is, but he also does something. He forgives. That Jesus actually forgives the sin that we have. Listen, anytime we sin against someone, someone has to pay that debt. In the story, the the person that is the creditor has to, he's got to pay the debt. If you owe a year and a half worth of salary and then two months of salary, you don't just forgive and wave a magic wand and it's like it never happened. That person has to pay the debt. Anytime that we do something and ask for forgiveness, The one forgiving has to pay the debt. Whether it's a car accident and someone pays for the damage, or even if it's a breach of trust, the person saying, I forgive you, is saying, I'm going to release that. I'm going to allow our relationship to continue. I'm going to eat the the loss of trust and actually extend it to you again. Jesus is the one that pays the debt that we have, the cost that we have. On the cross, this is what Jesus did. He paid for our sins. He paid for our debt, our debt against God. Jesus says, I will pay it. We sing that song, Jesus paid it all, which is to say we've incurred a debt, but God will pay it on the cross himself for us. So when Jesus says, your faith has saved you, This is what she would have been hearing in Jesus' preaching. That now, in this moment, Jesus is affirming your faith in who I am is gracious. Your faith that I'm not going to turn you away, but rather I'm going to accept you. Your faith that you don't have to pay back your own sin, but that I will forgive it. Your faith in that, your faith in me, has saved you. Faith is our 
resting on Jesus' work for us. Faith is our reliance on Jesus' work for us. Faith in yourself says, I will forgive myself. I will do better next time. I trust myself to get myself out of this. Faith in Jesus says, I rest on you and what you've done. I rely on what you've done, knowing I'm unable. So, how can our guilt be dealt with? Do you feel guilty? Do you feel symptoms of that guilt? Failure and low self-esteem and defensiveness and needing acceptance. Jesus says he, it's part of why I love the debt story. Jesus says he can free you. If you have debt right now, imagine if someone just said, all gone. I mean, that would be a beautiful thing. It would be liberating. You would feel peace to some extent. You would feel freedom. And Jesus is saying, I can free you. I can remove it. I can give you peace and rest through the removal of your guilt. That's how our our guilt can be dealt with. And then finally, what happens? What happens when our guilt is removed? Because without this taking place, we might be religious. We might come to church. We might be moral people doing moral things. We might have belief. We might even, like Simon, be interested in Jesus. All of those things can happen. But when our guilt is removed, that kind of action from Jesus does several things that we see from this woman. First is it creates a service in our life. She gave her whole self to Jesus. That's part of what Jesus compared between her and Simon. She comes to him and is with tears and expensive perfume and kisses on his feet. I mean, that's a strange That's a strange scene, right? Like if you guys saw me at my house eating dinner and some woman was there kissing my feet and wiping my feet with her hair, you wouldn't be like, oh, there's Caleb and just keep walking, right? You would be like, this is really weird. And it, I mean, that would be weird today in our sort of like free culture. But 2,000 years ago, this was very weird. But what it's showing to us is she is giving her whole self to Jesus Probably the most expensive thing I have, I'm breaking and anointing on your feet. I'm willing to be even humiliated in front of others and am using my hair as a rag. I am kissing and just, I mean, it's an overflow, obviously. But she is giving her whole self to Jesus in service. And listen, when we have experienced a freedom of our guilt, when we have experienced a peace from what he has done for us, It creates in us a joyful, whole self service to God and to others. I think that might even just be a a helpful diagnostic question for you. Do you have that wholehearted, whole self service to God, to others? If not, maybe it's because you haven't experienced this freedom. Maybe you're not living in that. So it creates a service. It also creates grace to others. Part of this story is a corrective to Simon. Part of this story is Jesus saying to Simon, you should be responding the way I'm responding. You see a sinner and you feel self-righteous. 
I see a sinner and I accept them and I bring them towards me and I forgive them. See, when we have received grace from Jesus, when we have experienced him removing our guilt, it has the effect of us being way less judgmental towards others that are sinners. But we often are so offendable towards people sinning against us, aren't we? Somebody sins against Somebody sins against you and you just feel like, how dare you? And it might, it depends on what the thing is, whatever pushes your buttons in particular. But somebody that lives like that, somebody that can't be sinned against. Listen, if you find it hard to be sinned against, what you're saying is you haven't really experienced to the depths the grace that Jesus has given you because you view other people as sinners, but forget how you have sinned against God and racked up a debt you could never pay back, but that he forgave you. So when we experience this, it actually creates deep grace in us towards others. It creates in us a non-judgmental spirit. It creates in us a non-critical spirit. It creates in us the ability to forgive others because of how much we've been forgiven. And it creates love. It creates this deep love. Jesus says that the one that is forgiven little loves little. And because her many sins were forgiven, she forgave much. That's, that's a powerful statement. Her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Listen, I, I don't know how you feel about God. I don't, like emotionally, I don't, I don't know how you feel about Jesus. But I think it's helpful to look at this story and say, is there anything close in my life like this? Like, is there any emotional response in me that has ever wept because of what Jesus has done for me? That's ever, if I could, I would be down at his feet, kissing his feet, and the most expensive thing I have, I'm, I just shatter at his feet. Is there any of that in you? If not, if your faith is kind of cold, if it's kind of dry, maybe it's because you haven't experienced this. Maybe it's because you've never experienced this at all. And religion and church and stuff for you has just kind of been like Simon, being a good person, doing the right things, believing the right things. But you haven't really felt this. You haven't really, you haven't really put your faith in this. Or maybe you have, but it's been a long time. And you've forgotten. And you're not experiencing this now. But this is a true equation. That the more we believe ourselves to be forgiven, the more we love. The more we understand how big our sin is, then we realize how big his forgiveness is, which leads to how big our love is. I, I, I've heard before, and I always find it kind of a helpful illustration, is thinking about it like a trampoline. And I, I think this kid's going into space. I don't think he's ever coming back down. But the deeper that you go down into your sin, the more that you go up into experiencing God's love. If you're only willing to kind of look at your sin like this, if you're only kind of willing to go, okay, yeah, I'm kind of a sinner. 
I'm a little, okay, maybe I did that. If you're only willing to give a little tiny hop, then you only come up a little bit. If you feel like I've got little sin, so I've been forgiven a little, then that means he loves me a little. If you only love him a little, it's because you only believe he loved you a little, because he only forgave you a little, because you're just a little sinner. But if you really see, my sins go deep. They go into my actions and my motives and my heart and my trusting of other gods and my building a sense of righteousness and my sins against others, their sins against him. I have rejected him. I have ignored him. When you allow yourself to jump deep, I wish I had a trampoline here so I could like show you, but when you allow yourself to jump deep into embracing what your sin is, then you bounce up into knowing how much he's forgiven you and how much he loves you. That is always going to be a true equation. That if you look at your life and wonder, why don't I love God as much as I used to or as much as they do? Oftentimes, it's exactly this story that Jesus gives to us. So what happens when we experience our guilt removed? It creates a love for God. And then the last thing it does is it creates peace, which is what we're talking about. The final word that Jesus gives, and this is why we say this every Sunday. Jesus says to her, go in peace. See, what it creates when your sin is removed, when your guilt is dealt with, is peace. You have a peace with God because you know you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're loved. He's gracious, he's forgiving, and it creates a peace with yourself. You don't have to prove, you don't have to work to earn something, you don't have to even forgive yourself. You, you receive and rest in him. It even creates a peace with others. Because like we said before, you don't have to be so offendable and critical and judgmental and need from other people some sort of affirmation that releases some of that guilt. It creates peace. A delight in knowing what he has done for us. So you and I want peace. I don't know how you answer the question when we started, do you have peace? I know at some moments I feel at peace and some moments I don't feel at peace. But the only way to deal with that is we deal with the roots. We deal with the guilt. We receive his grace. So, so here's what this means for, for all of us. It means that maybe for you today, it's to begin that process of actually, conf maybe you're not a Christian. It means this is who Jesus is and to come to him. And that's what he wants to give to you. It means to receive that from him. It also means for us that our Christians, it's to confess our sin to him. To confess our righteous and our unrighteous sin. Our, our unrighteous sin, meaning the things that you know you've done or your, your attitude, things that you've done or things that you've been. It means to confess those things to him, those unrighteous things. But it also means to confess the righteous sins the ways that we've built an identity apart from him and that we failed that God. And to confess is to say, God, part of where I feel guilt is actually that I've failed these other standards, these other false gods I've set up. Forgive me for putting my trust in false gods instead of you, for putting my identity, for putting my righteousness in these things instead of you. So part of what this means for us today is to confess. And part of what it means is to over and over again 
when we're not at peace, to fight to believe the gospel again. I know even this story this week has been helpful for me in moments where I have felt not at peace. I'm not saying you do this once and then you move on. This is the source that creates peace, though. It's the fountain that keeps giving that peace. So then when you are going through your day and you're going through your week and you feel again not at peace, come back to this and say, okay, have I sinned against God? Or do I feel like I've failed some false God? And again, allow your heart to remember his grace, his forgiveness, and come back to him. Remind yourself. When we take communion, this is what we're doing. This is part of why we do this every single week. We remember Jesus paid the debt. We remember that he invites us and is gracious to us and forgives us because his body was broken, his blood was shed. It's not just money. He had to give his very life to absorb the debt. He took on the debt that we could not pay to free us and to give us peace. And you know what? One last thing that I love about this story. One of the things I love about this story is her sins are already forgiven. She already trusted and believed the gospel. That already happened at some point when she heard some sermon from Jesus. That already happened. So this wasn't the moment she's forgiven. That already happened. And yet, when she comes to Jesus here, Jesus is reassuring her. He's reminding her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Truth that she already believed at some point when he preached. Jesus is now, and listen, so important, part of why he does this, is because in the face of rejection from Simon, in the face of other people or other things in our life saying, you're guilty, Look at who you are. Look at what you've done. I mean, imagine she's here as as this story is going on and as she feels the judgment from Simon. And she is thinking and she is believing. I I know Jesus forgave me. I put my faith when I remember he preached that sermon and Jesus in the presence of that says, I want to reassure you again. Your faith has saved you. I want to reassure you again. You are forgiven. See, that's part of why Jesus gives us communion. Why he doesn't even just say, hey, read the book and just remember that I did that and once done, the end. But part of why Jesus said, I want you to take communion and remember. I want you to over and over again be assured that in the presence of every voice around you, every voice inside of you, I forgive you. I give you grace. He knows we're weak. He knows we wander. He knows we need that all the time. And so today, even as you take communion again, is a time to be reassured, reassured. It's time to be reminded. And I pray a time to be renewed and rekindled and to remember I have a God who is gracious. I have a God who forgives me. So take this time and own your sin. Don't be afraid of it. Own it. And let that bounce you up into experiencing his great love, his great forgiveness. Father, we thank you that you are good to us. We thank you that you gave us Jesus, that you died for us and paid a debt that we could not pay ourselves. I pray, Lord, as we take communion and as we 
sing these songs, that you would use this time for our hearts to be reassured in your grace.